0: morning. I think we'll get started. I um, just want to say a word of welcome to C.K. Williams. Very great pleasure to have him have him here. Pleasure and an honor. C.K. Williams won. I'm trying to remember which, which books won which prizes. He won the National Book Award for the singing, the Pulitzer Prize for repair, and then the Book Critics Circle Award for flesh and blood. Something, like that, Something right? like that. He's also a distinguished translator from the Greek and from the French, and uh, A a poet who thinks a great deal about about language and and teaches here in the creative writing program, one of America's best known and best most read uh, poets. And every book, every book is an event, and hearing him read is also an event. So, welcome,
1: (laughs) Charles. Can you hear me all right? Am I hooked up, wired? Um, I'm going to read, sort of across. Um, the years, although I don't have enough time to read something from every book, but I'll sort of just rush along and then we'll stop and talk for a while, then I'll read some very recent poems from the last few months. Yours. I'd like every girl in the world to have a poem of her own I've written for her. I don't even want to make love to them anymore. Just write things. Your body makes me delirious. Your face enchants me. You are a wonder of soul, spirit, intelligence, one for everyone. And then the men, I don't care whether I can still beat them all, them too, a poem for them. How many? Seeing you go through woods like part of the woods, seeing you play piano, seeing you hold your child in your tender, devastating hands. And of course, the children too, little poems they could sing or dance to. This is our jumping game, this our seeing game, our holding each other. Even the presidents, with all their death, the congressmen and judges. I'd give them something they would hold awed to their chest as their proudest life thing. Somebody walking along a road where there's no city would look up and see his poem coming down like a feather out of nowhere, or on the assembly line, new instructions, a voice sweet as lunchtime, or she would turn over a stone by the fire, and if she couldn't read, it would sing to her in her body. Listen. Everyone, you have your own poem now. It's yours as much as your heart, as much as your own life is. You can do things to it. Shine it up, iron it, dress it in doll clothes. Oh, men, oh, people, please stop how it's happening now. Please, I'm working as fast as I can. I can't stop to use periods. Sometimes I draw straight lines on the page because the words are too slow. I can only do one at a time. Don't die first. Don't give up and start crying or hating each other. They're coming. I'm hurrying. Be patient. There's still time. Isn't there? Isn't there? Um, I wasn't going to talk about the poems much between poems, since we're going to be talking anyway. But this morning when I was looking at that, I remembered the conditions under which I wrote it, and I thought it was rather interesting. uh, I had met a young woman in a bar the night before, and we had a very quick romance. (laughs) (laughs) And the next morning I got up and I thought, I don't have to make love to them all anymore, And uh, (laughs) and the poem came. Usually my poems take years, but that one took about half an hour. This one took years, the dog. Except for the dog that she wouldn't have him put away, wouldn't let him die, I'd have liked her. She was handsome, busty, chunky, early middle-aged, very black with a stiff exotic dignity that flurried up in me a mix of warmth and sexual apprehension, neither of which, to tell the truth, I tried very hard to nail down. She was that much older, and in those days there was still the race thing. This was just at the time of civil rights. The neighborhood I was living in was mixed. In the narrow streets, the tiny three-floored houses they called Father, Son, Holy Ghosts, which had been servants' quarters first, workers' tenements, then slums, still were, but enclaves of us, beatniks and young artists, squatted there and commerce between everyone was fairly easy. Her dog, a grinning mongrel, rib and knob, gristle and grizzle, wasn't terribly offensive. The trouble was that he was ill, or the trouble more exactly was that I had to know about it. She used to walk him on a lot I overlooked. He must have had a tumor or a blockage of some sort because every time he moved his bowels, he shrieked a chilling, almost human scream of anguish. It nearly always caught me unawares, but even when I'd see them first, it wasn't better. The limp leash coiled in her hand, the woman would be profiled to the dog, staring into the distance, apparently oblivious with those breasts of hers like stone, while he, not a step away, laboring trying to eject the feeble, mucus-coated, blood-flecked chains that finally spurted from him, would set himself on tiptoe and hump into a question mark, one quivering back leg grotesquely lifted. Every other moment he turned his head as though he wanted her, to no avail, to look at him. Then his eyes would dim and he'd drive his wounded anus in the dirt, keening uncontrollably, lurching forward in a hideous electric dance as though someone were at him with a club. When at last he'd finish, she'd wipe him with a tissue like a child. He'd lick her hand. It was horrifying. I was always going to call the police once I actually went out to chastise her. Didn't she know how selfish she was, how the animal was suffering? She scared me off, though. She was older than I'd thought for one thing. Her flesh was loosening, pouches of fat beneath the eyes, and poorer, too, shabby, tarnished. I imagined smelling something faintly acrid as I passed. Had I ever really mooned for such a creature? I slunk around the block, chagrined, abashed. I don't recall them too long after that. Maybe the dog died. Maybe I was just less sensitive. Maybe one year when the cold came and I closed my windows, I forgot them. Then I moved. Everything was complicated now. So many tensions, so much bothersome self-consciousness. Anyway, those back streets, especially in bad weather when the ginkgos lost their leaves, were bleak. It's restored there now. Ivy pointed brick, garden walls with broken bottles mortared on them. But you'd get sick and tired then, the rubbish in the gutter, the general sense of dereliction. Also, I'd found a girl to be in love with. All we wanted was to live together. So we did." It's interesting to read that because it's a poem about racial relations. Um, Well, it's too much to explain, but it's very interesting to think how it's changed since last week. Yep. Now we're hopping ahead to another book. Elms. All morning the tree men have been taking down the stricken elms skirting the broad sidewalks. The pitiless electric chainsaws wind tirelessly up and down their piercing operatic scales, and the diesel choppers in the street shredding the debris chug feverishly, incessantly, packing truckload after truckload with the feathery, homogenized, inert remains of heartwood, twig and leaf. And soon the block is stripped, it is though illusions of reality were stripped. The rows of naked-facing buildings stare and think their divagations more urgent than they were. The winds of time, they think, the mystery charged with fearful clarity. The winds of time, all afternoon on to the unhealing evening, minds racing, insolent, unconscionable, the winds of time. I'll read a poem that I hadn't planned to. I realize um, much of my tenderness toward the earth seems to revolve around trees. Um, And I'll read another one. It seems as though I live in France some of the year, and we had a terrific windstorm about 15 years ago, in France and England, actually. And it just tore down forests of trees, and it was something that had never been seen before. And I wondered whether um, we have made a a climate for our planet that doesn't fit the planet, or not the planet that we knew. And this poem was written um, around that time. It's called Storm. There's a reference in the end to the prophecy's promise, and those are some. Prophecies from India, from one of the Indian religions. Storm, another burst of the interminable intermittently torrential dark afternoon downpour and the dozens of tirelessly garrulous courtyard sparrows stop hectoring each other and rush to park unto a length of cornice endearingly soiled with decades of wing grease. The worst summer in memory thermal inversion, smog, swelter, intimations of global warming, though the plain trees still thrust forth buds as though innocent April were just blooming, last week's tentative pre-green leaflings are already woefully charred with heat and pollution thunder far off, benign, then closer slashes of lightning, a massive concussive unscrolling, an answering tremor in the breast, the exultation at sharing a planet with this, then sorrow that we really might strip it of all but the bare wounded rock lumbering down its rote rail. A denser veil of clouds now, another darkening downlash, the wind rises, the sparrows scatter, the leaves quake, and oh, I throw myself this way, the trees say, then that way I tremble, I moan, and still you don't understand the absence I'll be in the void of unredeemable time. Twelve sons, the prophecies promise, Twelve vast suns of purification will mount the horizon to scorch, sear, burn away. Then twelve cosmic cycles of rain, no tree left, no bird song, only the vigilant acid waves vindictively scouring themselves again and again on no shore. Imagine then the emergence, oh this way, The the sky streaked, Oh, that way, with miraculous brightness, imagine us beginning again, timid and tender, with a million years more this time to evolve, an epoch more on all fours, stricken with shame and repentance before we fire our forges. I wrote a series of poems on jealousy called Some of the Forms of Jealousy. I'm a very jealous person, sexually jealous, I mean, not envious, that's something else. And I, th- some- I sometimes used to, anyway, drive my wife crazy with my jealousy. Fortunately, she's very jealous, too, <laughs> so she understands. <laughs> but I wrote this sequence of 14 poems trying to cure myself of jealousy. Poetry has many functions, but one of them is not to cure yourself of jealousy. (laughs) The question. The middle of the night, she's wide awake, carefully lying as far away as she can from him. He turns in his sleep, and she can sense him realizing she's not in the place she usually is. Then his sleep begins to change. He pulls himself closer. His arm comes comfortably around her. Are you awake, she says. Then, afraid that he might think she's asking him for sex, she hurries on. I want to know something. Last summer in Cleveland, did you have someone else? She'd almost said, she was going to say, did you have a lover, but she'd caught herself. She'd been frightened by the word, she realized it was much too definite, at least for now. Even so, it's only after pausing that he answers no, with what feeling she can't tell. He moves his hand on her, then with a smile in his voice asks, Did you have someone in Cleveland? That's not what I was asking you, she says crossly, but that's what I asked you, he answers She's supposed to be content now, the old story. She knows that she's supposed to be relieved, but she's not relieved. Her tension hasn't eased the slightest bit, which doesn't surprise her. She's so confused that she can't really even say now if she wants to believe him or not. Anyway, what about that pause Was it because in the middle of the night and six months later he wouldn't have even known what she was talking about, or was it because he needed that moment to frame an answer which would neutralize what, after all, have been a shocking thrust with a reasonable deflection, in this case his humor, a laugh that's like a lie, and is. When could I have found the time, he might have said, or who in Cleveland could I love? Or in that so brief instant, might he have been finding a way to stay in the realm of truth, as she knew he'd surely want to, given how self-righteously he esteemed his ethical integrities. It comes to her with a start that what she most deeply and painfully suspects him of is a renunciation. She knows that he has no one now, she thinks she knows there's been no contact from Cleveland, but she still believes that there'd been something then, and if it was as important as she thinks, it wouldn't be so easily forgotten. It would still be with him somewhere as a sad regret, perhaps a precious memory, but with that word renunciation hooked to it like a price tag. Maybe that was what so rankled her that she might have been the object of his charity, his goodness. That would be too much that he would have wronged her then sacrificed himself for her. Yes, lover, she should have said it. Lover, lover, should have made him try to disavow it. She listens to his breathing. He's asleep again. Or as he taught himself to feign that too? no. Last summer in Cleveland, I didn't have a lover. I have never been to Cleveland. I love you. There is no Cleveland. I adore you. And as you'll remember, there was no last summer. The world last summer didn't yet exist. Last summer still was universal darkness, chaos, pain. Um a different tone. This is a poem that um, I have a special attachment to, strangely enough, because several people have read it at funerals. Once in French, once in English. It's called Garden. It's part of a sequence, but it stands by itself. A garden I usually never would visit. Oaks, roses, the scent of roses I usually wouldn't remark. But do now, in a moment for no reason, suddenly unlike any other, numinous, limpid, abundant, whose serenity lifts and enfolds me as a swirl of breeze lifts the leaves and enfolds them. Nothing ever like this, not even love. There's no need to measure, no need to compare, for once not to be waiting. To be in the world as time moves through and across me. To exult in this fragrant light given to me, in this flow of warmth given to me and the world. Then on my my hand beside me, on the bench, something I thought somebody else's hand alighted. I flinched it off and saw sorrow, a warbler, gray, black, yellow, in flight already away. It stopped near me in a shrub, though, and waited, as though unstartled, as though unafraid, as though to tell me my reflex of fear was no failure. That if I believed I had lost something, I was wrong, because nothing can be lost of the self of a lifetime of bringing forth selves. Then it was gone its branch springing back empty, still oak though, still rose, still world. Um, I'll lighten things up for a moment. (laughs) This is called Gas. Wouldn't it be nice, I think, when the blue haired lady in the doctor's waiting room bends over the magazine table and farts just a little, and violently blushes? Wouldn't it be nice if intestinal gas came embodied in visible clouds so she could see that her really quite inoffensive pop had only barely grazed my face before it drifted away? Besides, for this to have happened now is a nice coincidence because not an hour ago, while we were on our walk, my dog was startled by a backfire and jumped straight up like a horse bucking, and that brought back to me the stable I worked on weekends when I was 12, and a splendid piebald stallion who, whenever he was mounted, would buck just like that, though more hugely, of course, enormous, gleaming, resplendent. And the woman, her face abashedly buried in her L now, reminded me I'd forgotten that not the least part of my awe consisted of the fact that with every jump he took the horse would powerfully fart, flap, 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 something never mentioned in the dozens of books about horses and their riders (laughs) I devoured in those days. All that savage grandeur, the steely, glinting hooves, the eruptions driven from the creature's mighty innards. Breath stopped, heart stopped, nostrils madly flared. I didn't know if I wanted to break him or be him. (laughs) That's my attempt at (laughs) humor. The singing. I was walking home down a hill near our house on a balmy afternoon under the blossoms of the pear trees that go flamboyantly mad here every spring with their burgeoning forth. When a young man turned in from a corner singing, no, it was more of a cadence shouting, most of which I couldn't catch, I thought, because the young man was black, speaking black. It didn't matter. I could tell he was making his song up, which pleased me. He was nice-looking, husky, dressed in some style of big pants, obviously full of himself, hence his lyrical flowing over. We went along in the same direction, and he noticed me there almost beside him, and big, he shouted, sang, big, and I thought how droll to have my height incorporated in his song. So I smiled, but the face of the young man showed nothing. He looked, in fact, pointedly away, and his song changed. I'm not a nice person, he chanted. I'm not, I'm not a nice person. No menace was meant, I gathered, no particular threat, but he did want to be certain I knew that if my smile implied I conceived of anything like concord between us, I should forget it. That's all. Nothing else happened. His song became indecipherable to me again. He arrived where he was going, a house where a girl in braids waited for him on the porch. That was all. No one saw, no one heard. All the unasked and unanswered questions were left where they were. It occurred to me to sing back, I'm not a nice person either, but I couldn't come up with a tune. Besides, I wouldn't have meant it nor he have believed it. Both of us knew just where we were in the duet we composed, the equation we made, the conventions to which we were condemned. Sometimes it feels even when no one is there that someone, something, is watching and listening, someone to rectify, redo, remake. This time again, though, no one saw nor heard. No one was there. I'll read one more called Cassandra Iraq. Um, it actually grew out of this kind of meeting with questions from students. And I forget how, we were talk, how it came up, but I was talking to them about how um, when you're young, um, it's very important for you to be right, that you'll stay up all night arguing with your friends to prove that you're right and that when you get older, sometimes being right, in fact, makes you rather sad. And this poem grew out of that. And Cassandra, of course, was the Greek prophetess at Troy, who, 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 the Trojan prophetess, who um, foresaw the fall of Troy, but when she spoke, people couldn't understand her. They thought they heard birds singing. She then is ended up um, kidnapped and brought to Agamemnon's palace, where she's murdered by Clytemnestra. Cassandra, Iraq. She's magnificent as we imagine women must be, who foresee and foretell and are right and disdain. This is the difference between us who are like her in having been right and disdain, and us as we are, because we In our foreseeings our having been right, are repulsive to ourselves, fat and immobile, like toads. Not toads in the garden who, after all, are what they are, but toads in the tale of death in the desert of sludge. In this tale of lies, of treachery, of superfluous dead, were there ever so many who were right, and disdain, with no notion what to do next. If we were true seers, as present as she, as frenzied, we'd know what to do next. We'd twitter as she did, like birds, we'd warble, we'd trill. But what would it be, really, to twitter, to warble, to trill? Is it e e ee, like having a child? Is it ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, like a wound? Or is it inside? like a blow, silent to everyone but yourself. Yes, inside I remember, oh, oh, oh. It's where grief is just about to be spoken, but all at once can't be, oh. When you no longer can think of what things like lies, like superfluous dead, so many might mean, oh. Cassandra will be abducted at the end of her tale and die. Even she can't predict how. Stabbed, shot, blown to bits. Her abductor dies too, though, in a gush of gore in a net. That we know. She foresaw that in a gush of gore in a net. So should we have some questions? I teach a translation workshop, and we would spend approximately 12 weeks talking about different takes on translation. Um, The translation of poetry is a terrifically complicated subject, so why don't you come take my class? (laughs) Because it's too long to talk about here. But thank you anyway. Um, The balance is long, mostly long, with a very few, pretty short. Um, um, Short for me is probably a month. Long, I have one poem that literally took 20 years before I figured out how to do it, a poem in there called King, about Martin Luther King. Um, um, For me, writing a poem isn't an event, it's a process. You know, things sort of grow and fall off and grow and fall off, and sometimes it can be quite difficult, but um, other times it can be quite thrilling. You can be quite thrilled for days and days and days on end, even though what you're often doing is destroying what you did the day before, and then finding what's new that day, which might be destroyed the day after. Do
0: you want to say something about... Uh, books of poems. I mean, we, you know, we've, been, we've been thinking about, you know, we have the collected poems and we can read across the collected poems, but then each section of the collected poems is, is also a book. When you put books together, do you have a, do you have a method? Do you have, are they all different?
1: Um, the order Generally of the poems? they represent a certain period of time. Flesh and Blood was a little different because it was all those poems in the same form. Yeah. Um, but otherwise they 're just generally when I have accumulated enough poems over a certain period um, to put a book together, and then I have to try to figure out how to order it and I heard a funny thing about John Ashbury some one of his first books, some other poets, one of whom was talking about it, were trying to figure out how he arrived at this brilliant order of his book of the poems in his book. And they finally met him and mentioned it to him. And he said, oh, I just gave my publisher a pile of poems, and he put them in the order he wanted.
0: <laughs> <laughs> a lot of, I mean, some people, I mean, uh, Baudelaire said that Le Fleur de had a secret architecture. But no one's ever figured out what the secret architecture yeah. was. Yeah.
1: You know. That was a sort of unique book yeah. in many, many ways, obviously. I mean, it's not a thing that
0: critics think about. I mean, I just it, what order... Uh, movie makers think about how to edit, yeah. what to put order, but writers don't usually talk much about it, and critics don't think about the order in which you put things. Not, yeah. not writing them yeah. what they it's mean, not, but for ordering. Me it's, you know, it's,
1: it's not a big issue. I, I don't really want people to think about it that much. Mm-hmm. It's more... Um, you want each individual poem to exist yeah. in its own right. Unless you're doing a sequence, of course, then you do want to have an yeah. order, but otherwise... Um, it would be nice if every poem could be the first poem in the book. Okay. In a way. Yeah, that's nice. So for you, the
0: unit really is the poem. The book. The book is a. Yeah. The book is a, yeah. a collection incidental. of poems. It's not. Yeah. yeah it's not a, It's not. It's not. That's not where the, the artwork. No. It's yeah, yeah.
1: interesting. When I was doing Flesh and Blood, when I had I had then about 120 poems, and there was no reasonable way to put them together. I actually had a mathematician friend of mine generate a sequence of random numbers and then I numbered each poem and then put them in this sequence and it wasn't good. (laughs) (laughs) What makes me think that I've written a good poem? Um, Because I haven't thrown it in the garbage. (laughs) If I haven't thrown it away or put it back into a file, I think it's good. Um, How I first got started writing, I have many stories about it, the truth is I don't know. (laughs) Right at the end of my last required English course in college, I found myself writing a poem. And I thought, well, this is pretty neat. And then against all reasonable um, objections, I decided I was going to be a poet. I knew very little about it, but I just found that I loved the act. It was really something amazing, and that's how I got started.
0: How did you come across, uh, on The Long Line, which you became very well known at one point for The, yeah. the Poet of The Long Line? And
1: um, how did that happen? Well, I, I always had to look at it in retrospect. It happened sort of, um, it happened just like I was sort of taking notes for a poem rather than writing a poem and they were in these long they weren't so much i thought long lines they were in these long un, longer units of thought oh. and i wrote one and then i wrote another and uh, i really didn't think that much about them and i had a poetry reading to give and i brought them along i don't know why and i started reading one aloud and i just realized that this was mm. what i'd been looking for and then Over the years as people have asked me how did I happen to do it, um, there came up many different reasons. and The the main one was that I felt as though um, I'd been leaving too much of myself and the world out Mm. in the poems that I was writing, that they were like little codes I was sending, and you had to sort of know the system of decoding. And this way I could write poems that were more, just sounded like someone thinking. Mm -hmm. And so when, this, when it sounds as though someone's thinking or living, then I could put more in and more of the details and more of the things the way I actually lived, mm. rather than this special way of sitting down and yeah. writing.
0: So the feeling that the feeling that it, it we're still sort of at the note level in a way is part of the poem. You know, that you're still part,
1: the, sort of, yeah, like notations yeah. from the world. You could keep word. more of you your notebook more, in it. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's very interesting. It's very unusual, I think, for I mean poetry usually works the opposite way, towards
1: the code and the compression. It's mm-hmm. Very interesting. Um, obviously I think it's important because that's what I do, but there are other kinds of poetry that don't do it at all. Um, the House of Poetry is very large and <coughs> a lot of poetry is really this the equivalent of someone singing. It's some like Mozart, you know, that you're just hearing what someone can do with language and perception and and metaphor. And the the what you call the meaning or the the critical meaning as you would call it is really incidental. And then there's other poetry that moves more toward being concerned with what's going on. And ideally what one tries to do if you're someone like me who's trying to deal with what's in the world is to make the poem both things so that although it's dealing with things that have to be dealt with in life, that it's also singing. And that's the hard part. One of the hard parts, (laughs) a lot of the hard parts. This is called Roe versus Wade. (laughs) I'm sure that everyone here knows what Roe versus Wade is. You probably all don't know what it was like before Roe vs. Wade. Um, And this is a poem about that. Roe vs. Wade. I wonder if any male is alive but me who remembers that pre-Roe Wade abortionist doctor who demanded, along with his payment, a kiss. A soul kiss, as it was called then. And isn't that what you felt, those astounding first times her tongue slid warm and wet and alive onto yours that something you might call your soul had been revealed? It was another thing with that backstreet ledge for a woman, a girl, The one who told me had been barely 18. She shuddered just to remember, in rage or terror. I was glad not to have had to have been there. This was years after. We were in bed, we'd made love. So lithe she was, with such ardor, worked me in deeper. I only found out later from friends that after that one, She'd had another adventure in a hotel in New York, someone with a coat hanger she'd been told was a midwife. Hemorrhage, infection, and she was left sterile. As many times as we were together, she never told me, nor told me either, that she was on dope every day. Every minute I'd been with her, she was high, Or half high. That was the sexual revolution, I suppose, to screw a person, even love them a little, and know nothing about them at all. I just finished that a few days ago. It was hard to write. In fact, excuse me, I left out a word and I want to put it in there before I forget. (laughs) Okay, this is, now I'm moving into a different kind of style in some of my new poems. Um, This is one that actually was just published this week, and someone here saw it and asked me to read it. I wasn't going to, but um, in the poem, there's a reference to Katrin. Katrin is my wife. It's called The Coffin Store. I was lugging my death from Kampala to Krakow, death, what a ridiculous load you can be, like the world trembling on Atlas's shoulders. In Kampala, I'd wondered why the people, so poor, didn't just kill me. Why don't they kill me? In Krakow, I must have fancied I'd find poets to talk to. I still believe then I'd domesticated my death, that he'd no longer gnaw off my fingers and ears. We even had parties together, happy said death, and gave me my present, a coffin, my coffin, made in Kampala with a sliding door in its lid to look through at the sky, at the birds, at Kampala. That was his way, I soon understood, of reverting to talon and snarl, for the door refused to come open, no sky, no bird, no poets, no Krakow. Catherine came to me then, came to me then. Open your eyes, mon amour. But death had undone me. My knuckles were raw as an apes. My mind slid like a sad-ankled skate. And no matter what Catherine was saying, was sighing, was singing, mon amour, mon amour, the door stayed shut. Oh, shut. I heard trees being felled, skin smoothed, hammered together as coffins. I heard death snorting and stamping, impatient to be hauled off, away. But here again was Catherine sighing and singing, and the tiny carved wooden door slid ajar, just enough. The sky, one single bird, Catherine Just enough. Um, This is called Wait. I'm trying to, in the poems I've been writing recently, this group, I've been using more of the sound of language. um, More resolutely, I guess. Wait chop, hack, slash, chop, hack, slash, cleaver, boning knife, axe. Not even the clumsiest clod of a butcher could do this so crudely time as do you. Dismember me, render me, leave me slop in a pail. One part of my body a hundred years old, one not even there anymore. Another still riven, riven with idiot vigor, voracious as the youth I was for whom everything was always going too slowly, too slowly, it was me then who chopped, slashed, through you, across you, relished you, gorged on you, slugged your invisible liquor down raw. Now you're polluted. Pulse, clock, calendar, taint you, befoul you. You suck at me, pull at me, barbed wire knots of memory, tear me my heart hangs inert a tag end of tissue firing misfiring trying to heave itself back to its other way with you but was there re- okay. but was there ever really any other way with you when i ran as though for my life Wasn't I fleeing from you or for you? Wasn't I frightened you'd fray, leaving me nothing but shreds? Aren't I still when I snatch at one of your moments and clutch it, a pebble, a planet? Isn't it wearing away in my hand as though I, not you, were the ocean of acid, the corrosive in which I dissolve? Wait, though. Wait, I should tell you, too, how happy I am, how I love it so much, all of it chopping and slashing and all. Please know I love especially you, how every morning you turn over the languorous earth, for how would she know otherwise, how to do dawn, to do dusk, when all she hears from her speech creatures is wait. We, whose anguished wish is that our last word Not be weight. And for just one little more, um, or not. Well, this is a poem about poetry, the foundation. Watch me, I'm running. Watch me, I'm dancing. I'm air. The building I used to live in has been raised, and I'm skipping, hopping, two-footedly leaping across the blocks, bricks, slabs of concrete, plaster, and other unnameable junk, or nameable really if you look at the wreckage closely. Here for instance, this shattered I-beam is the Bible and this chunk of mortar, Plato, the mortar of mind, also in pieces, in pieces anyway, in my mind. Aristotle and Nietzsche, Freud and Camus, and Buber and Christ, even. That year of reading, Paradise Lost, when I thought, hell, why not? But that fractured too. Kierkegaard, Hegel, and Kant, and Goffman, and Marx, all heaped in the foundation, and I've sped through so many so often that now I have it by heart, can run, dance, be air, not think of the spew of intellectual dust I scuffed up when in my barely broken in boots I first clumped through the sanctums of Buddhism, Taoism, Zen, and the Ariaka even, whose entire text I typed out. My God, why? I didn't care. I just kept bumping my head on the lintels. Einstein, the Gnostics, Kabbalah, Saint this and Saint that. Watch me again now because I'm not alone in my dancing, my being heir. I'm with my poets, my Rilke, my Yeats, we're leaping together through the debris, a jumble of rack, but my Keats floats across it, my Herbert and Dunn, my Canell, my Bishop and Blake are soaring across it, my Frost, Baudelaire, my Dickinson, Lowell, and Larkin, and my Giants, my Whitman, my Shakespeare, my Dante and Homer, they were the steel, though scouring as I was, the savants and sages, half the time I hardly knew it. But Vallejo was there all along, and Sidney and Shelley, my Coleridge and Hopkins, there all along with their music, which is why I can twirl through the rubble of everything else, the philosophizing and theories, the thesis and anti and sin, all I believe must be what meanings were made of, when really it was the singing, the quiring, the cadence, the lull of the vowels, the chromatical consonant clatter. Watch me again, I haven't landed. I'm hovering here over the fragments, the remnants, the splinters and shards. My poets are with me, my soarers, my skimmers, my skaters, aloft on their song in the ruins, their jubilant song of the ruins. Thank you. Fantastic.